Okay. Well, I could tell a joke or I could sing. That was the joke. <laughs> we are continuing our look this morning. Let me get away from the speaker. At, at scriptures that, that really try to give us wisdom in, in how we pray. And one of the things that has characterized several of the passages that we've looked at in recent weeks is recognizing ways that Paul prayed for other believers and then incorporating those prayers into our prayers. Uh, that our prayers for each other have a larger vision of God's purposes. Uh, and we definitely, definitely get to pray for healing and we get to pray for jobs and we, we get to pray for uh, God's will on a variety of things in each other's lives. But that hopefully we're growing wiser about examining and understanding God's vision for our lives. But we're looking at a passage this morning uh, out of 1 Timothy that goes in a little bit different direction. So as, as, was, as Larry just read for us a few minutes ago, uh, let me read the, again the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So here, one of the things he says is prayer for all men. And then he says for kings. For all those in authority. And yet he lays out a purpose for this. We're going to come back to the all men. But he, he lays out a purpose for praying for kings and, and those in authority. He says that we may live lives in tranquility, which just means peace. Lives of tranquility and a quiet. But he gets real specific here. In all godliness. And dignity. So here Paul is challenging you and I as believers that we would be in a consistent process of prayer and that we would be praying for all men, which again, we'll come back to that in a minute. But he's focusing on kings and people in authority, presidents, prime ministers, governors, mayors, people that have authority over other people. And that we would be actively entreating, actively making petition in God's presence on behalf of those people toward this end. And a couple of ends he's describing. One is that our lives would be peaceful. How many people here would love to have a more peaceful life? Yes. Okay. He's saying, you know what? Governments and rulers and authorities and all kinds of people in authority can contribute to that peacefulness. They cannot guarantee it, but they can either contribute to it or they can sure get in the way of it. And he's saying this is an appropriate prayer for the people of God, that we would be asking God to intervene in human affairs, intervene through men and women of authority to protect peacefulness in our lives and to protect peacefulness in our communities and peacefulness in our, in our nation. 
We get to pray for that, knowing this. I always love this part, that it was God's idea for us to pray for this. God's not saying, oh, fine. It was his idea that we pray for it. Because that's a goal that he's trying to work on. Now, kings and rulers and, and powers and authorities, as we talked about in, in Sunday school this morning, we're looking at the book of Daniel. And this principle comes through very powerfully throughout the book of Daniel. Kings and governors and rulers are put in that place of authority by God himself. But then they answer to God for how they use that authority. Then they answer to God for, for their reach into people's lives. They answer to God for the quality of their decision-making, and they particularly answer to God, were they in alignment with God's purposes when he granted them that authority? So we get to pray that men and women in positions of authority will begin to discern God's purposes. And again, another beautiful principle that comes out of the book of Daniel, God's even able to do that with totally non-Christian rulers. That many of the, of the rulers that Ezra, that Nehemiah, that uh, Daniel, that Joseph, etc., we could keep going through. Many of the rulers they dealt with were pagan rulers that God prevailed on them through his people to accomplish godly purpose. And it'd be, we won't do it, but it'd be wonderful to go back through some of that history right now and, and see, look, there's God working through a pagan ruler because his people were bold in praying. And that is one thing that comes through frequently. They were bold in praying. That before Daniel went to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, he went before God in prayer. And so that's you and I exercising God's idea out of 1 Timothy, his father, we're not just going to vote. We're not just going to write letters of complaint to rulers. We're not just going to sign petitions. And guess what? As believers, you're free to do all of that. In fact, I would say it's wise to do all of that. Be the voice that God has given you in a nation that at least claims to give your voice some authority. Exercise it. But where you're recognizing, but what I'm really praying for isn't that my voice makes a difference. What I'm actually praying for is that the hand of God makes a difference. And I get, to, I get to exercise my voice in whatever format I can speak it. But then I... Any, anything you want to... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Share with the group. Um, that recognition that we have, we have standing in the most powerful place in the universe, the presence of God. And Paul is saying here, as he's speaking to Timothy... Tell your people to go exercise that authority. Tell your people to go exercise that authority in the presence of God. But I love the second thing he gets to. It's not just tranquility. It's not just peace and quiet. It's because we have envisioned in mind that that peace and quiet will equip us to live with dignity. And that's what matters. Oops, I skipped the word. Godliness. <laughs> Godliness. So God is saying, here's how I want to work through your leaders. Here's how I want to work through your communities. I want to work through your politics. Here's how I want to work through everything you're praying for me to have a hand in, that it sets you free to grow into the character of Jesus Christ. It sets you freer to grow into the character of Jesus Christ. 
But the flip side, which is real clear in scripture is, but nothing can stop you from growing in the character of Jesus Christ. So is God delighted when we have a, a, a community or a country where we have liberty, where we have freedom to grow, where we have freedom of religion, where we have freedom of conscience? I think it's real clear that God loves that and has honored it and protected it through the centuries. But he also makes it real clear out of, out of Galatians 5, 23, which I think we talked about last week, after he says, now, here's the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the, the heart and character of Jesus Christ blossoming in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he adds this, against such things, there is no law. We never get to tell God, and we never get to even believe the lie. Father, I can't grow in love because of this. Father, I can't grow in peace because of that. Father, look what's happening in my country. How could I possibly grow in joy? And he's saying, I promise you there is no principle in the universe that will stop my people from their freedom to grow in the character of Jesus Christ. But he's still revealing, but it's my heart's desire that you have greater freedom to grow in godliness. Now, one of the things that's interesting and in James, uh, James chapter 4, James says this. He says, you, you have not because you ask not. But then he adds this really uh, irritating addition. And you ask and, and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. And so I don't want to just pray for, for political liberty. I don't want to just pray for freedom of religion. I don't want to just pray for our leadership, and you and I don't want to just pray for people in authority to make our lives peaceful. God is saying, please grow this mindset. Please grow this mindset that you look at all of those things as liberty to grow in godliness, as greater freedom to grow in godliness, and remember that nothing can stop you from that growth. But pray for it with that in mind. So again, it's not just, I don't want... You know, and I could say this is a, I won't make any comments. It's the word of God, I think, right? <laughs> you can't stop the word of God. That's a good thing. That I can say this sentence, and while I'm saying it, I, I, I believe it's actually true. I don't want government to hassle me. I don't want government to hassle me. When I'm doing my business, when I'm spending my money, when I'm deciding where I want to go or what I want to do, I don't want government hassling me. But God's saying, you know what? That's fine. But that's a really low level of, of, of a goal. I want this higher goal maturing in you. That you go, Father, I want the people in authority blessed by your hand of wisdom so that I really willingly choose growing in godly. That gets to be our higher motive and our growing vision. I still think we're free to say, I don't want my government to hassle me, but that we keep aiming for the higher thing. Now, he goes on to say this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What he's, what he's commanding us to pursue in prayer is good in God's eyes, but he adds this who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge 
of the truth. So back to all men now. Because he started out with prayers, entreaties, petitions, thanksgiving made on behalf of all men. And all men, obviously, is a gender-free title. It means every human being you know. And that recognition that God's saying, there is nobody outside this focus. And now he's telling us why. He's revealing the heart of God to us. God's saying, there, there is this desire in the heart of God. I'm looking at every man, woman, and child on planet Earth. All men. I'm looking at all of them. And I desire that every single one of them would become mine. I desire that every single one of them would come to understand the truth of Jesus Christ and then out of understanding that truth that they would choose faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And, and that is not just a, a sloppy wording here. God is revealing something to us about the inner workings of his heart that he's saying nobody is exempt from this. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many people here have at least thought even if you didn't say it out loud, that person, that person, that person, they'll never be a Christian. That person or that person, they really deserve hell. In fact, I can't wait to watch when they go to hell. Now, none of us will want that. <laughs> when we see those moments, when we, when we recognize that, that, not, that won't be something any of us desire. But what God's saying is, larger than you, I'm at, the, I'm at the apex of this whole process, and there is nobody on the planet, nobody in time or history, that I have not desired would come to faith and become my son or daughter. Now, again, just to recognize, okay, so we have this here in 1 Timothy 2.4, he desires all to be saved. Flip over just a little bit. Let's see. I'm sure I get to the right one. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Same book, 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. What a, weird, what a weird thing for God to say. The living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. And one of the things that God again is revealing here, whoops, out of 1 Timothy 4.10, is He's saying, I'm offering salvation to everyone. I really am their Savior. But now, only believers are taking advantage of the offer. The offer is to everyone. So if, if there's three people drowning, they, they all fell off the 100-foot cruiser into the water, and there's somebody up there tossing lifesavers in, and, and two of them grab the lifesavers, and they're hauled to safety, and, and that, that helpful person tosses the third lifesaver in, and the third person yells back, no thanks. Try not to ruin the electronics. No thanks. I don't believe in lifesavers. 
and drowns. That person was still offering salvation. And someone foolishly turned it down. And that's the picture that's presented here out of 1 Timothy 4.10. Is God is saying, I'm offering it to everybody. And I want you praying on behalf. That as I bring people into your life, I bring friends, I bring relatives, I bring co-workers, I bring neighbors, I even bring enemies into your life so that you are my ally in praying for their salvation. You're my ally. You're my son or daughter who thinks like I do and wants what I want, so you pray for their salvation. And, and I've thought this often, and, and other people have said it way more eloquent than this, but the best way to turn the tables on the enemy when he has someone come to our lives, Satan, capital E, enemy, when he has someone come into our lives to be our enemy, is to pray for their salvation. What a wonderful outcome that will be. That this person who came against me one day, and it may be years after I'm out of their life and I never even know it until I meet them in, in eternity, that the Holy Spirit kept working to draw them in because I was faithful to believe that this passage is really true and that this person is one of the all men that God desires to save. And so I committed myself to pray for them. I have only heard a few people, and sitting in a counseling office very frequently, I'm dealing with somebody who's going through really, really hard times, and sometimes really, really deep injustice is being done against them. And only a handful of times have I heard a believer say, this person, I hope they go to hell. Now, fortunately, if we keep working, I almost always, I don't know if I can think of any exceptions, I almost always see that heart change. Where they finally get to a point, not necessarily of trust or closeness or reconciliation with the person who's their enemy, but where they finally begin to comprehend that would be the best outcome. is not that they go to hell, but that God robs them from the enemy. That God steals them back. It's called redemption. That he buys them back from slavery. That will be the best revenge against the true enemy. And God's saying, please be my allies in praying for them. Now, while we're at that passage, I want you to go to Romans 5, 18. Because I want us to see that this is a constant, stable theme in the Word of God. Romans, Romans 5.18 says this, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And again, God's saying it in a weird way because normally, doctrinally, I think we would mostly say, well, justification has only come to believers. But again, Paul is talking about the offer. He's saying, I have offered justification of life to everyone. And I want my sons and daughters to comprehend this so they don't get sucked into believing that I've only called a few. So Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. We have to be praying for that calling. That person will still have to respond. But we get to align ourselves with the heart of Jesus Christ and say, I want to pray for them to hear that 
justification that they can be restored to a sinless standing before God, I want to pray for them to comprehend that. And go to 1 John chapter 2. Way at the back. And in 1 John chapter 2, he says this, starting at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, propitiation means a satisfactory payment, a sacrifice that filled the bill, that completely removed the debt. And again, what God is saying is, my son's death was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. I'm offering it to the whole world, for God so loved the whole world. But only believers have taken advantage of it. And again, such a clever and, and interesting way for God to say it. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The offer is genuinely universal. We cannot exempt anybody. We cannot say, this person is so steeped in sin, they are literally outside the realm of God's offer of grace. This person so opposes Christianity, it would be useless to pray for them. Now, I know that I have felt that. I haven't believed it doctrinally, but I know I have felt that at times. Father, it sort of feels like it'd be useless to pray for this person to get saved. And God's saying, not from my perspective, it's not. I love them, Reg, just as much as I love you. Pray for them. They'll have to choose. They'll have to accept. But you be my ally in interceding for them. And we're just being commanded here. Be my ally. Make entreaties. An entreaty doesn't mean, hey, could, I please, uh, could you please pass the salt? An entreaty means... Please pass the salt. Now, if I ever do that, Ben, you better pass the salt. But what he's saying is an entreaty means your whole heart is in the request. You're not being formal. Your heart longs for the thing you're asking. And what a maturity that is for you and I to aim for. Is, Father, as you bring people into my life and, and you bring people to my attention, and there's some people you put in, in front of me to pray for their salvation, I want to recognize this, Father. I, I want to recognize that your heart wants my heart desiring their salvation. And if I'm not there yet, Father, help me keep immersing myself in your way of thinking, immersing myself in the Word of God, where I come, come to comprehend what a treasure that person is to you, how much delight it will bring you. So we've talked about this plenty of times where, where God talks about this, that when one person comes to repentance and is saved, that there's, there's a celebration in heaven. That the angels are celebrating with God. That means there's a constant party room somewhere in heaven. Okay, you guys got to go over there and do this. You guys, everybody else who's not busy doing stuff, you can come to the party room because we are celebrating that right now all over planet Earth, men and women and children are coming to know Christ. 
I have no clue what that looks like. But Jesus simply declares that it's true. Celebration is happening when that person I didn't think could be saved finally accepts Jesus Christ. And that you and I would have a growing vision of that so that we pray and entreat and intercede and desire with God what He desires on behalf of that person. Now, he, he also says this, if I can get back to the Timothy passage. There is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And again, that recognition, this is for all. Our prayers get to go there. But I love the, the clarity of this. One God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. That means in our witness, we get to be unapologetically clear. We're not trying to, to belittle other people who believe different. We're not trying to ridicule them. We are not trying to win an intellectual debate. But we get to present the clear claim of scripture that jesus christ is the only way so in john 14 6 when jesus says i'm the way i'm the truth i'm the life and no one comes to the father but through me he's echoing this passage or actually this passage is echoing his claim there are no other mediators and Hebrews 6 says the same thing. I cannot reject the mediator that God has offered and say, I would like another method, please. There are no other methods. I don't like this faith thing. Give me, give me a task. Give me some rules to obey. Give me a way that I can accomplish it or give me someone or something else besides Jesus. And the word of God is clear. There is no other way. There is no other mediator. There are no other means. This is a gift. And again, as we're praying for others, we get to remember, Father, help them to comprehend this is a gift. This is not God putting them down. This is God offering something majestic. And we get to be the people who show up with the Christmas-wrapped package and say, the Father has a gift for you. This is not, you're bad because you're not like me. You're worse than me, and, and you need to become as good as me. That is absolutely not the gospel. It is God has a gift, but we can't throw away the gift and still end up in relationship with him. And he actually closes that passage with this. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So part of that, lifting up holy hands. So look at your hands. Look at your hands. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, those hands are holy. Seriously. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, these hands are holy. And you go, well, were they holy yesterday when I was using this fist to hit my brother? Were they holy when I was using this fist to take something that wasn't mine? Of course not. Those acts were not holy. But Ephesians 1 promises us that now through faith in Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ, you and I stand holy and blameless before 
God. And he's saying, I want you to comprehend that so when you go into prayer, you don't cower. You don't apologize for being in my presence. You come boldly and you say, Father, I'm here to pray. Whether I'm praying for kings, whether I'm praying for all men to be saved, whether I'm praying for Susie to be saved or Bob to be saved, whether I'm praying, Father, for, for this event or that job or this healing. Father, whatever I'm here to pray for, I'm going to lift my hands remembering this. I have the authority and the freedom and the right to be here because Jesus Christ, dying under your horrendous wrath on the cross, has made my hands holy and made me blameless and worthy to be here in your presence. That's hard to believe sometimes. In fact, if I were to, I won't, but if I were to ask how many people right now, uh, you sort of believe it, but you sort of don't. At least a few of you would raise your hands because we, we put so much into feelings. Okay, this one I will ask. How many people in the room feel holy and blameless? How many feel it? Not a lot. How many, in fact, feel that you're not so holy and not so blameless? Yeah. And what God would say is that feeling is normal and that feeling is a lie. If that does not agree with what God has spoken over you, that feeling is a lie. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things you need to go repent to God. There might not be... There might be very well things that you get to say, Father, there's some attitudes and behaviors and patterns. There's some ways I treat people. There's some ways I think. There's some activities or habits I pursue that are definitely not pleasing to you. And back to 1 John, one of the things he says in 1 John 8 9, we get to go confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us. So we need to keep doing that. But he's talking about your standing. You keep doing that. Every day that you sin, which means every day, come into my presence and ask for forgiveness. And I will faithfully, it's not a maybe, it won't depend on his mood. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he is faithful and just to forgive us. But when you come into my presence, remember this. Please remember this. My son's death made you holy to stand in my presence. My son's death made you holy to stand in my presence. And we get to be filled with gratitude. Every now and then when we, when we bow our heads to prayer and, or even driving down I-35 with your eyes wide open and your head not bowed, to still remember this. Father, I remember this. You have made me holy. Thank you so much because this is not something I could have ever earned. Thank you so much that I have the right to come into your presence and intercede and pray and seek your blessing on my life or other people's lives. To pray for someone's salvation, to intercede for peace and tranquility in our nation. To intercede for that tranquility to, to equip me to pursue godliness. Father, thank you that I get to be here to pray these things. So we get to be filled with gratitude because we agree that my feeling that I am not holy, my feeling that I am not blameless, based on my behavior, that feeling does not tell me the finished work of Jesus Christ, which you say is finished, effective, finished. Boy, that's a hard thing to grow in, but we have to keep growing in it. Now, 
even though this doesn't come out of this particular passage, I wanted to look at a, a couple of other things for just a couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to go into a time of shared corporate prayer, and, and Larry's going to come up and lead that in just a couple of minutes. But as we're facing the coronavirus and all the panic and fear that is being spread over that, and I do believe that there are real threats and we need to be cautious. Uh, there are people that with the right combination of age and other health problems, we need to be careful and cautious and thoughtful. We get to be wise. But what scripture absolutely commands us to do is pursue wisdom without fear. Wisdom without fear. And so Jesus in Matthew 6, three times he says something really insane. In that one little passage from verse 25 to about 34, three times Jesus says, do not worry. And I've had several clients who have just sent me a slew of, of text messages or emails of nothing but worry. And, and to be fair, they're in counseling to work at overcoming that. But just frantic fear. What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And we have, we have this promise that God says in, in 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. And it's not just a concept, a concept of love. It's the recognition. I have the God of the universe working in my life. How many people here in the room have ever had some kind of unpleasant medical event in your life? Yeah. Almost everybody has. So God is not saying, well, if you pray and you trust me, nothing bad will ever happen. We've dealt with that plenty of times. God is not promising nothing bad will ever happen. But what he is saying is, but for my children, there is always purpose. But on top of that, he's also saying this, and he shows it quite beautifully in, in the book of Job and other passages. And if it's not my will, I prevented it. There are so many things in your life. I would expect literally thousands of things in your life and my life. Thousands that the enemy wanted to do. Physically, emotionally, financially, socially, relationally. A thousands of things that Satan wanted to do and God said, no. Literally, no. I'm not allowing it. It's not going to happen because I don't have a purpose for it. I'm only going to allow it because I promised my sons and daughters that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew, whom he foreknew in Christ. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So here's part of what God's promising. If I cannot use it to help you grow into the, into the maturity and the character of Jesus Christ, if I can't use it for that purpose, it won't happen. But as soon as it does happen, those things that do happen, that actually gets to be part of our growing maturity and part of our growing wisdom. As Father, I don't see it yet, maybe, but I want to agree with you on this. If you allow this hard thing into my life, you actually have a way to use this to help me grow into the character of Jesus Christ. Father, that is an absolute certainty because of your character. This Horrible thing, sad thing, disappointing thing, painful thing, terrifying thing is a tool in your loving hands to help me grow into the character of Jesus Christ. Father, I know that that's true. Now, 
Help me anchor my hope and my peace and my joy on that tree. You have a purpose that's invested in loving me and maturing me into the image of Christ. I'm going to go to Psalm 56. So if you can look at Psalm 56 without broadcasting it to the whole room. I, I get to pick on them. I remember I, I had to tell Carrie when we got married, uh, in preparing her, we, we were married in Hawaii, uh, and only my mom and my older brother came to the wedding, so she had not met the whole, the whole crew. And I had to warn her, honey, if they tease you, they like you. Get ready. And fortunately, or unfortunately, they really liked her. They really liked her. Here's Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. Ever felt like that? Whether it was men or circumstances, ever felt trampled on? Yeah. For there are many who fight proudly against me. They take pleasure in fighting against me. When I am afraid, listen to this. David knew that there would be moments of fear. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. Not just some amorphous God, not my own version of God, the God that is revealed in Scripture and speaks truth to me, the God who gives me promises, the God who gives me warnings, the God who gives me commands to obey, the God who sets out a path for me to walk on. That God, I will praise Him for His word, in God I've put my trust, now I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me all day long? They distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger, put down these peoples, O God. And one of the things that I, I really encourage you and myself whenever we're reading David talked about real human enemies. He was a warrior. He'd actually gone out to fight for his life against real enemies. You and I have real enemies. But Ephesians 6 promises us our real enemies are not flesh and blood. It's not somebody who wants to harm me. But if somebody does want to harm me, it's the enemy behind them that I get to fight. It's the enemy behind those people that you get to fight. And that we're recognizing those enemies, the, the spirit and the domain of Satan himself, hates us and desires to bring destruction to our lives. You've taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And that's just a very tender expression from God's heart that your sorrows, your tears, your struggles, um, those matter to God. He's actually saying he collects them. But that recognition for David is he didn't go to other gods to cry. He came into the presence of God to cry. And those are the tears that God collected. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. Please listen to this. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I've put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, God. 
That means your, your promises are unbreakably true. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. As we deal with whatever coronavirus, as we deal with whatever flows from that, as we deal with whatever decisions, wise or foolish, flow from governors and kings and lawyers and presidents and Congress, while we deal with all of that, we get to remember these truths that God's saying, my sons and daughters have no reason to live in fear. You get to be wise, you get to be cautious, but fear does not belong in the family of God if we believe in and trust the promises and the character of God. Larry, will you come up and lead us into prayer, please?